0: All right, come on now, good morning. Who's excited to be in the house of the Lord? Excited to be here this morning, so good. Man, I look for every Sunday, come and worship with our church family here at Moorhead and our Ashland campus as well. And everybody watching online, thank you for tuning in. And hopefully you're a little rowdy this morning, got a little extra hour of sleep, right? Come on. How many enjoy the extra hour of sleep? You enjoy the extra hour? Come on, you know you do. How many you can't stand it gets dark like at three o'clock? Come on, that's bad too, right? So it's kind of a trade-off. It's okay, I guess, for a season, right? You can enjoy the cold weather and stay in and uh, watch some movies, get some cookies. That's what I always do. Don't? That's my favorite thing. When it gets cold is, you know, stay in or get some Soup, like this is soup season, everybody's making soups, and so anyway, it's uh, just good to be able to worship with our church family. Get your Bibles, go to Revelation chapter 2. Uh, if you've been visiting with us for the first time, first time in a long time, we're in this series going through the seven churches. Uh, in the book of Revelation. And so uh, you, they don't build on each other, but if you've missed any, I would encourage you to go back and watch those uh, because you could get the whole context. A lot of people wanna stay away from the book of Revelation because a lot of imagery and thoughts, and there's some you know, things up for debate. And, and there are some things that you just may not fully understand and we grasp, um, but a lot of it we, we can. And so the seven churches are seven real churches that at the time that he wrote to and uh, that John wrote to. And then we can learn so much from them. And hopefully over the last few weeks, God has been using that to speak into your life, to actually encourage you and build your faith that you could see the prophecy of the scriptures being fulfilled like we've been talking about on Wednesday nights. And this past Wednesday night, again, too, we had another packed house. And so if you're interested in that stuff, we're gonna be talking about the Battle of Armageddon and the second coming of Christ this Wednesday. So if that, if that interested you, come. We'd love for you to be part of that. doesn't matter if you attend our church or not. It's open to anybody who just wants to become who wants to come and be part of it. Uh, we welcome you to do that. And so here are the seven churches. Every week I kind of show you this graphic, and you're going to remember it for the next, I guess, hopefully seven years. But anyway, the, these are the churches, right? We started with Ephesus, you could see, then Smyrna, then Pergamos, then Theratyre, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Why are the churches in this order? Well, this was the postal route. John, when he wrote this letter, he wrote the book of Revelation, Jesus told him what to write, he copied seven of those letters that we least know of, and he sent seven letters to the seven churches. He earmarked them to the messenger or the angel of those church, which in the context, the messenger or the mouthpiece to the church in those cities was the pastor. So you can imagine as the pastor, you get a letter from the apostle John that was dictated by Jesus. So you're pretty excited about that, right? Jesus wrote me a letter, wrote me a, a, personal, a personal letter to speak to the church, to the people of God in my city. Is that, wouldn't that be amazing? And Jesus does a lot of great things, talks about the good stuff, the good stuff, but he also talks about the bad stuff. And so that's what we've been going through with these churches. These are seven real churches in the time. And, and the last few Sundays, you've, you've kind of had maybe more of a Bible study kind of talk, and that's because it's very important for you get the context to the text. We gotta get the background because when we start reading, especially the book of Revelation, when you begin to read some of the imagery and some of the things that are taught there, unless you have a good understanding of the Old Testament, really, the Old Testament, like really, when you read the book of Revelation, if you were a a devout Jew and, and you read the book of all the Old Testament and you skipped the New Testament and you picked up with the book of Revelation, you would like you've never missed a beat. So there's so much Old Testament imagery, you're gonna see that a little bit today. I wish I had time to jump into every bit of it, but for time's sake, we don't. But hopefully God will use this to just to encourage you to see and the things that he knows that goes on in with our lives. And so we're gonna be talking about the church of Thyatira today. And this church was actually the smallest church out of all of them. It was the smallest city, the smallest church. In fact, some scholars are asked themselves, why would even Jesus write to this city? It was so kind of insignificant in a way. There was nothing, it wasn't like a metropolis. It wasn't on the sea. It wasn't a big, you know, kind of a trade route. It wasn't where people just kind of bypass. You just don't go to Thyatira, right? You had to purposely be heading that way. It was a blue-collar city. It's where people just the working class. If you think about smokestacks, Detroit, Michigan, like, like places like, like in, the industries would take place here. A lot of industries all over the place. And so it's kind of like if you drive by and you saw the smoke rise. Yeah, that's the high tower over there. They're, they're making something, they are doing something. It was also a military outpost. It guarded Pergamum. Now, we talked about Pergamum last week. Now, it was a small city, so it couldn't keep the enemy away. But as a way to slow the enemy down so that if someone was coming to attack Pergamum, that they would know that. So it was kinda of this military outpost. They had their eyes wide open to see the valley. They were really unprotected. They had no high mountain that they could get on top of or anything. So they're kinda of in the open here in the middle of this valley. But they were able to warn Pergamum if someone would come. And so in this small town, they had these things called guilds. Now think of guilds as trades. Contractors, like think of people who like like today electrician, plumbers, pipe fitters, bullet makers, like contracted labor type thing. Like these were the place where people had all these con- contracts. These guilds they would call them. And guilds was you were belong to a guild. So if you were an electrician, let's just say, then that, that's just they didn't have electric back then. Just for some of you wondering if they had electric, no, they did. You know, Elon must have something back then. You know, set up like for everybody to do that. And so, so you would be part of a. a now here's watch it. Not, not a union, but like a union. In fact, people believe that unions were birthed out of this movement right here, out of the guilds, in Thyatira. So if you're part of a union, you're like, I, we're part of a union, we're contracted out, we'll go to any place, we'll do anything, because we're part of a union, a guild that would send us. So if we were an electrician contractor and we were part of this guild, this movement, and someone needed an electrician, we would send you electricians. So have that in your mindset when you think of all the people of all types of industries, there were guilds in this city. Now, we don't know all of them, but we know some of them. How do we know that? Because you can go visit the city of the Tower today and you could see the ruins. It's just a few stones and turnover, but they left it there. And in the stones are etched in the different trades, the different guilds, the different contractors in that city. They would have things like wool makers. They would make wool. Linen workers, bakers, blacksmith, people who weaved baskets of stuff together, the leather workers, they would make the leather. and real, Shoemakers, they would make different types of sandals and shoes, tailors were there. But there were two that stuck out that I wanna, I'm gonna focus on one of them just in just a moment. One was dye workers. This is the place where you bought purple clothing. This is so important for us to understand. Like, this is the roots they had there. They would get this, like, red type stuff out of, and they would soak it, and it would turn into a royal purple color. It was purple. So, there were dye makers there who made royal purple clothing. And then there were bronze smiths, they were known for the bronze. They would know they brass, they would make things shine and it's just shields and stuff. This is where you went to Mordor, Like If you're going to Mordor, you know what I'm talking about? Any of my Lord of the Rings fans out there, come on now. Yes, bless that hand, bless that hand. You know what I'm talking about? Like, that's the trilogy, we're getting ready to start. Like, so so this is like, you're going to Mordor, you need some shields, you got you go to Thyatira because they're gonna make you the best bronze shields. You're gonna have all the bronze, all the brass, everything you need to go in the battle. This was like one of the biggest trades. They were they were proud of the trades. They were proud of the bronze that they wouldn't well, the Roman Senate over Asia Minor had to officially sanction your union, had to officially sanction your guild, whoever you belong to. And if you belong to one of the guilds, you had to be sanctioned by the Roman Senate to do this. Now, here's what's so fascinating about it. The guilds was the social fabric, fabric, I mean, of this community. If you had to belong to a guild to have community, you had to be part of like that union. If you wanted community in this society, you had to belong to one of them. It was your community, and watch this, it was your economic lifeline. You had no job unless you belonged to a guild. You couldn't be like this outcast. Who's the new guy in town? Hey, I'm just trying to moonlight on the side, trying to get a little bit of business. Anybody, can I do something around the house for you? What guild do you belong to? I don't, peace. That's how, that's how connected they were. If you were not part of a trade, if you were not part of a local guild that was, that was dictated by the Roman Senate, you had no lifeline. So what does that mean? You moved it to retire, if it's your dream city to retire in, you had to, let well, join, be part of the union, the guilds in that place. If not, you had no job. But here's, a, here's, a, here's some problems with that. Each guild had its own god, each one had their own God. And you had to worship and serve that God of that union, of that trade group that you were part. Of. So all the electricians, they, they, if you were electrician, again, they don't, but just the modern, put your mindset. You, if you are that union, that guild, that's cool, that's awesome, great. You gotta worship that God. You're a dime maker, you, you're a bull maker, you, you, you here make leather shoes, you, you make, you know, purple clothing, you make bronze. Each one of those union, those guilds had their own gods that you had to worship. And here's the thing about the gods. They didn't care if you worship somebody else. They wasn't monotheistic. They, they didn't care. You could be polytheistic. You have all the gods you want, but you had to worship me as well. So you could go worship. Maybe some of you had dual trades. You were really good talent. So one of you, you know, you you worked with bronze. Another one, you worked over here as a baker because you loved to bake, and you did both of those because they both started with B. So like a bronze baker, and then you you love you work you got to worship both those gods, and the gods didn't care. It don't matter who you worship. We're all we'll all get along. You can worship any god. So there's a, there's this this is pluralistic movement of worshiping gods. But here was so crazy. Two of the guilds worship the. The, the Jewish God, like worship Ya'hweh, two of them, the dye makers who made the purple royal clothing, and the stone makers. These two guilds, if you join that guild, you worship the Jewish God. Now now this is what's so fascinating about the, the, the purple dye makers is that Roman society was very distinct. And just like today for a lot of people is that you are judged based on your outer appearance. You were judged on what you wore and what you would wear. And the highest esteemed color was purple because it meant royalty. And listen this, you were only able to sell purple clothing to three distinct classes, emperors, senators, and equestrians. If you do not belong to any of those upper classes, you can never, ever, ever buy purple from them. And it's a way to outcast society. And it's a way on what you wear distinguishes who you are. Does that even sound like anything today? When we started this church, I'll never forget, me and Pastor Adam, we were together and it was just our two families. We were sitting there in the spring of 2007. You probably don't know what you were doing in 2007 at spring. We were sitting there eating and breathing. What type of church did we wanna create? White type of church, so in the future, we looked. We knew we'd be a regional church and God would bring people from all surrounding counties. We knew that. We knew that we would reach a college campus and we would, we would reach our communities, that we would lift Jesus up and he would draw people to themselves. And we wanted people to come as they are, and we wanted the church to love people, but when we open up God's word, that God's word would offend us because God's word is offensive. It offends, it pricks our heart. If God doesn't prick our heart, how can we confess and come closer to him and draw to him? So we wanna be a Bible-believing, Bible-standing church that we preach God's word, we lift up Jesus, and he would draw people. And then I told him this, and here's something else I wanna do, Pastor Adam. He said, what? I said, I wanna be a church where people can come just the way they are. He said, what do you mean? I said, with their clothing. The number one question I get when I ask people, invite them to church, is not what denomination, what Bible translation you're on. The number one question is this, what do I have to wear? And I, from day one, I went from a suit and tie of the church I pastored before we planted this church to a church I'm gonna wear jeans and a t-shirt or a sweatshirt. Why? Because I want people just to be normal, just to come with, and no class can be distinct on what you wear, what you have on. See, they've been doing this for 2,000 years. Like forever, this has been around. So it's not like this is like, this has been around forever. They will judge you on what you wear. And so Rome monopolized the purple clothing because we were full of senators, emperors, emperors, and equestrians. And if you were not one of them, you could not buy from the purple dye makers. Now, this was not so fascinating. Connected the Bible with the Bible in Acts 16. When when Paul was, was, was preaching, Dr. Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, gives us inside a, a, a little bit of thyatine right here. Check this out. On verse 13, it says this, Acts 16. On the Sabbath, when a little, they went a little way outside the city to a riverbank where they thought people would be meeting for prayer. And they sat down with some women who gathered there. One of the women was Lydia. From Thyatira, look here, a merchant of expensive purple clothes. Lydia was part of Thyatira's guild that did the purple dye. Now watch this. She worshiped God because that was the guild God, Yahweh. We worship him, Jehovah God. But watch this. But as she listened to us, the Lord opened up her heart and she accepted that Jesus is God. She accepted the good news. Now, from that we don't know, but I will bet you—I'm not a betting man; I don't do trade, draft draft king, not stuff. But I will bet you that Lydia was part of the early church plant that planted in Thyatira. Now, 40 years later, Jesus sends a letter to that city to address because watch this: she opened up her heart to the gospel, went back to Thyatira, and they planted a church. And the purple dye maker that she's a part of worshiped the Jehovah God. Is that not amazing? So you never see, when you read that you gotta put the whole thing in context. And the Bible goes on and says in verse 15, she and her whole entire family was baptized, was baptized, and that's what we're doing today. If people wanna be baptized, we're ready for that today. So, but here's the problem, here's the problem. No problem, I got a job, part of a guild, cool. They wanna worship that God. I really don't like that God, but I gotta put food on the table. So that's okay. But guess how they worship the gods? All the time, here's what would take place. The guilds would get together and they would have what's called a guild feast or a union feast. All the bullmakers makers get here, all the pot fitters get here, all the electricians get here, all the plumbers get here, all the dime makers get here, right? Come on. All, all, all the bronze makers, they get together. And here's what, they, they got together and they had a feast. This is the way that we build camaraderie. This is the way that we would build fellowship. But this is the way that we would stop working and we would, watch this, worship the God of the guild that we're part of. Now, this is where the problem enters in. This is where we begin to take place. How did they worship the guild gods? They would first, they would eat meat that was sacrificed to idols. See, meat's abundant today, it wasn't then. You didn't know where your protein meat was coming from. We can go today so to we can get any meat we want, uh-uh meat was a rare commodity, and someone was gonna feed you meat, you would show up. Like it was the thing, like you're gonna have meat offered for me because I can't get meat all the time. Some people didn't have the farm, they didn't didn't have the cattle, they didn't have the stuff to kill. Very rare, you're gonna provide meat for me, I'm gonna come and worship your God who gives me this meat. So they would kill the animal, they would sacrifice it to an idol, and they would eat the meat. After that, they would drink till they get drunk. And then after that, all that would lead into debauchery and sexual immorality. So these love feasts became orgies. And so you're sitting here and you have to put food on the table and you're working as one of the guilds, what are the union workers you wanna be, and now you're invited to the feast and you have to go to the feast and you're gonna be fired and you go to the feast and this is what takes place. What do you do? You can see if you're now a follower of Jesus how this is gonna become a big, big, big red flag for you. This is what's happening in the city of Thyatira. This is what's going on amongst the early church. These are the things that are taking place. So the questions are, can I participate in the Guild Feast? Yes or no? Who's the bishop to tell me this? Who do I go to? And what happens if I say no? And this was addressed in Acts 15 at the Council of Jerusalem. They specifically addressed the Guild Feasts that take place in the cities around, especially in Thyatira. Listen Listen to this, look at Acts 15, verse 19. So here's my judgment, is that we should not make it difficult for Gentiles who were coming to faith in Christ. What was being difficult? Well, they were telling the Gentiles, some of the Jews were telling the Gentiles, "Way well, hey, you got saved, that's awesome, you gotta be circumcised. Well, I'm 50 years old, you gotta be circumcised. Why do you gotta be circumcised? This is too difficult, man. I, I, there's too many hoops. You gotta be circumcised. You gotta obey the feast. You gotta do all this thing. You gotta follow some of the Old Testament laws, the ceremonial laws, all these other laws, and you gotta put it in place. And the Gentiles were like, man, what about, I just put my faith in Jesus. I didn't know I gotta do all this other stuff. So the debate was, how do we make it easy for the Gentiles to come to faith in Christ? We can't put these rules and regulations in front of them. So what do we do, look what he says. Let's not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, here's what we should write to tell them to stay away from. If you can stay away from this, thumbs up, you're good. What did they say, look what they said. Eating food offered to idols. Flee from sex or immorality. Stop eating meat that were strangled of animals. And stop consuming blood. All that, you're cool, welcome to the family. Now you're in Thyatira, and you read this, and you know that if I go to this if I go to this feast, that I'm going to be eating food of idols. I'm going to fall in sexual morality, and I know this is what that I am not supposed to do. But if I don't do it, how am I going to put food on the table? See, sometimes we read the Bible like, oh, you know, it's no big deal. No, imagine this is you. No, I love Jesus. Yes, I do. I love Jesus. How about you? You say you love Him until something like this happens. To someone who wants to shut you up at work because you wanna talk about Jesus. To so the culture wants to counsel you because you wanna speak truth. And when you do speak truth, you're a bigot. You see, compromise and tolerance is so rampant in the church. So what do you do when you're faced with stuff like this? How does this happen? See how relevant this is today? Come on, we're, we're almost done and then we're gonna jump into the text, right? Well, you gotta get this. In this city, you hold on to that question, in this city was a local symbol. A symbol was a prophetess. She was like a fortune teller. And so people would go to the fortune teller, they would go to the local sibyl, and they would ask their questions. Well, she would pull the deep, dark secrets from below, she would pull them from the below, and in a, in a trance, ecstatically, she would speak to you. Well, who's the God of the underworld? In the Greek mythology of this time, this is Apollo. So she would keep her, she would get her deep, darkest secrets about you from the god of the underworld, from Apollo. So people would go to the Sibyls; they would go to the local prophet. She was, a, she called herself a prophet, and they would go to her and they would ask her questions, and she would get into this, this trance and she would speak and prophesy to you. That's very key to know that context and know that's what's going on in this area. And here's the crazy thing, she happened to be Jewish. So there's this local prophet, this lady, who gets in this trance who can pull out the deep dark secrets from the underworld, from, the, from Apollo, and speak to you. That's kind of freaky. Like we should've waited and did that for Halloween. You know what I'm saying? That's, that's kind of freaky stuff right there. And so you're sitting here and you're thinking, everyone's going to the local fortune teller everyone goes down to him and she would speak these things and she would say these things and then before we jump in i'm going i'm going i'm going to tackle the two big gods Zeus son Apollo was known as the son of god so when you heard the son of god you would heard of Apollo you thought of Apollo Apollo's in the underworld He's in the underworld and he's God's son. Zeus is the most powerful one. Now this this is Greek mythology. Zeus is the most powerful, his son Apollo is the son of God who rules the underworld. And then you would have Domitian. And Domitian's son died at an early age. He tried to keep his son living longer, his name longer by saying he was demified and he became a god. We don't even know his name. But Domitian made money, a coin, and on the coin, he put a picture of him on one side and his son who died of an early death on the other. Here's the coin, it's been extravagant, look it, here's a picture of it. Domitian's face and on the other side is his son. Now, let's go to the next slide. Look real closely at his son. He puts his son like on this globe. Now, why don't you pay attention to this? How do they know like the planets and the earth was round? Sorry for your flat earth theorist out there, okay? Anyway, how do they know that? Here's a little baby boy who died at, at a very young age. We didn't even know what time, but look what's in his hands. The seven stars. You see how this begins to make sense in the context? This little boy is the son of a Ab- He holds the seven stars. Do you notice the little stars on the coin? Revelation chapter 1, verse 16, John writes, I saw the one sitting there who holds the seven stars in his hand, whose mouth was like a double-edged sword when he spoke out. Who is he talking? Jesus is the Son of God, and it's Jesus who holds the seven stars. And when you know the city and the context and you see what Jesus is writing them, you go, oh, now I get it. That's why it's so important to have the context before you jump in to just pick a verse out. Anybody can pick a verse out, but you gotta jump in the context. So with that, y'all ready for the sermon? We only have six minutes and 13 seconds. Come on, we can do this, right? This is, now imagine, that's the city, that's the world. You're a Christian now, that's the thought you have. Can I go to the Guild Feast? What if I lose my job? What all this stuff? And all of a sudden, you get a knock on the door, the postal hands the bishop, the pastor a letter, you open the letter, which is the entire book of Revelation, so you get to read what he wrote to all the other churches as well. But you get to your name. Oh, he wrote, Jesus wrote us a letter. This is so good. Let's read, what does he want to say to the church of Thyatira? This is what he says. This is brilliant. If you know the Old Testament, this is what all the Jews who were there would have known the Old Testament, see this imagery, but the Gentiles who were saved didn't, which forced them to go study the Old Testament and figure out what is he trying to, to get to. This is a brilliant, brilliant move. Look here in verse 18 and to the angel of the church of Thyatira, right? Which was the pastor, we believe the messenger, according to the context given to the the mouthpiece there, to the church, look what he says, the Son of God, the Son of God who has eyes. Nowhere in the whole book of Revelation does Jesus call the Son of God. He only says it to the city who says, Apollo is the Son of God, Oh, Domitian's son is the Son of God. No, 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 I am the Son of God. See, when you see that, the first words out of his mouth is I am the son of God. Smyrna says, no, we wanna be first, we wanna be last. Jesus, says, no, I'm the first and the last. Pergamum says, we have the sword. No, no, Jesus, says, I have the sword. Thyatira says, we have the city of the son of God. Jesus says, I am the son of God. The only place in the, only place in the entire book of Revelation, Jesus says it. It's to this city right here. I am the son of God. His eyes are like a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze. Oh, you're a bronze maker? That's gonna speak to you. Why? Because this was known for the bronze and the smokestacks that they see, the the fire that they would have to, to make the shields and the stuff and you would see it coming from miles away. You think that you haven't, listen, my shoes are bronze. Jesus is speaking right into the culture, right into their language, and he quotes here, we can see here from Psalms chapter two, if you're taking notes, I gotta go fast, so I'm gonna speed up here, and I'm gonna leave some stuff out. And Daniel chapter 10, he speaks of these two imagery, if you're taking notes, Psalms two, seven, Daniel 6, he combines though when he writes that. Look what he says in verse 19, I know your deeds. Uh Uh-oh, please let that, I mean, if you don't hear anything else, don't miss that. God knows everything about you. He knows the thoughts you have before you even think them. He knows every private thing about you. You may fake your spouse out, you may fake your boss out, you may fake people out, you will never fake God. He knows everything, and watch this, and he still loves you. I know your deeds, look, your faith, your love, your service, your perseverance, and the deeds at last are greater than at first. Isn't that amazing? You see how they progress? The first church that not have no love. Ephesus, they lost their first love. Now you got love, and you got faith, and you've got service, and boy, you know how to persevere in the trial. And watch this, the things you used to do, you even do better now, and you do more of. The deeds you used to do were least, but now they're great. You are getting better, better, better way to go. So, so far, so good. And then verse 20 happens. But, don't we hate those? But, but what? But I have this against you, okay? What do you have against the church of Thyatira? Look what it says. You tolerate the woman, Jezebel. Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess. And she teaches and leads my bond servants astray so they will commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. So everybody knows who he's talking about. You ever talk about sometimes people say something like, are they talking about me? Are they talking about me? Is he talking about me? People say all the time, pastor, every Sunday you look right into my soul. You look right at me. And like, i try to like, oh gosh, you're looking at me. And like, you've been reading my Facebook? No, I haven't. You know, like, you know, you've been, listen, when he says the local prophet Jezebel, everyone went the symbol. The girl down the road, he gets in a static, the, the fortune teller. Jesus says, she's like Jezebel. Now, I doubt Jezebel was her name. Please, do not name your daughter Jezebel. I'm just saying, she has a Jezebel spirit. Now, I don't have time for time's sake, but you could go read about Jezebel in 1 Kings and 2 Kings, but long story short, King Ahab was the king of Israelite. He married Jezebel. Jezebel seduced him and worked him over. He was very weak. She came the leader, and because she became the leader, she brought in all the Baal prophets, and they worshiped Baal, and guess what they did? They would sacrifice animals to idols, and they had all types of sexual immorality. It's the Jezebel spirit that's all over the place right now. We don't call that, but Jezebel's spirit moves all over this world of sexual immorality and, and sacrificing to idols or the to worship false gods. And if you remember the story when Elijah went on top of the mountain and called down fire and killed all the prophets and destroyed everything, I don't know if you know the story, it's not a good bedtime story for your kids, but it's a fabulous story. The very next day, guess what happened? He finds out that Jezebel's after him and the man of God, the man of God that calls down fire from heaven, runs from his life from her. He runs away from it. And I can't figure out why did he run. The only thing I can figure out is because he's a woman. You know what I'm saying? That's the only thing. Like, just run, man. When a woman's mad after you, you just gotta get out of town. You know what I'm saying? Like, just run. Like, I don't know. He just called down fire from heaven. He's still blowing smoke off his finger, man. You know what I'm saying? And the next day, he runs and hides for a year in depression to the point where he wants to die and beg God to kill him. Depression's real. Even the prophet, the greatest prophet Elijah had it. It's a crazy story. You should read it. But he's saying, listen, this woman, this symbol, has the spirit of Jezebel on her and she's leading my people, my church, my people, away in sexual morality and eating uh, meat, sacrifice to idols. But then verse 21, look what God said. I gave her time to repent. Do you see the graciousness of God? And right now, you're stuck in your own sin and you got your own stuff, your own private stuff going on in your life. And here's the gods, gods like this. I'm giving you time to repent, bro. I'm giving you a chance to turn. In fact, listen to me. The only reason you are here today or at our Ashland campus is because the Holy Spirit brought you here, watch this, to turn your mind, to change your mind, which changed your heart, which changed your action. is to repent. The only reason... So if you're here and you're stuck in your sin and you're like, I have no way out of it, listen, Jesus says, repent and you can be set free. I gave her time to repent and she does not want to to repent of her sexual morality. I gave her a chance but she doesn't want to. Her heart's been hardened against it. So here's what I'm gonna do, verse 22. And this is like Jesus coming back with the sword. Listen, this is, this is listen, the judgment. Behold, I will throw her onto a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of her deeds she said he like girl you like to live on the bed don't you you make a living being in the bed with people don't you you seduce men to get into bed with you, don't you? But guess what kind of bed I'm gonna put you on? I'm gonna put you on a bed of sickness and you're gonna die from plagues and disease and I'm gonna destroy your life. I gave you a chance to repent. I was gracious to you and your heart was hard and so I confirmed what was in your heart and I have turned you over to your flesh and to yourself and watch this and I will put you on a bed of sickness. That bed, word bed means climb. It's where we get the word recliner from. You wanna recline back? I'm gonna make you recline back. On a bed of sickness. I love. He said, "I'm gonna. I am i do not love it, but he says I'm gonna throw her on a bed. Go read Second Kings chapter nine, verse thirty-three. Guess what happened to Jezebel? She was thrown out a window. So you'd have known that as she was thrown out the window and died. I'm gonna throw you on a bed of sickness. The parallels of Jezebel and this woman is unbelievable. And then he says this in verse twenty-three: I will kill her children. I'm gonna kill her children with the plague and all the churches will know that I am the one who searches the mind, the hearts, and I will give to each one according to your deeds. Now what is he saying, I'm gonna kill your children? What I believe in my interpretation of this text, could it be literally? Could be, it's what happened to Jezebel. But it could be her spiritual offspring. All those men that you seduced to get in bed with you, all the ones that they think they had, you knew there's some prophet and the Jezebel spirit was on you and you could call out deep dark secrets from the underworld, from Apollo, all those ones you seduced to you, I'm gonna take them out with diseases and plagues because they fell for your trap. Here we see that John quotes Jeremiah 17:10. Look what it says in Jeremiah. I, the Lord, search the heart and I test the mind to give to each person according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. See, John even quotes what Jeremiah the prophet says. Here's what Jesus says, I see you and I know all your deeds. But verse 24, but I say to you, the rest who's in Tower. what do you say to us? Who don't hold to the teaching. You have not, watch this, look at this. Look how he speaks about the symbol there. Who do not hold to this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan. Now this is where he's taking Satan to Apollo. Because as believers, we know Satan rules the underworld, but the Greek mythology, you thought Apollo did the underworld. Wait, wait, watch this. You think you know the deep dark secrets of Satan, of Apollo, of the depths? You think she can bring those up to you as they call them? Look, look at the parent, as they call them? He says, I will place no other burden on you. So nevertheless, verse 25, what you have, what do you have, watch this, hold firmly until I come. And the one who ever comes, It's the one who keeps my deeds until the end. And I will give him authority over the nations. That would speak to this little town. Authority, we have no authority. We're tired, We're the smallest, anybody can take us over. No, 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 hang tight. I will give you authority over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron. See this Old Testament language? And he shall rule him with a rod of iron. And as the vessels of the potter are shattered, I also have received authority from my father. Again, he quotes in Psalms (laughs) chapter two, verse eight through nine. And then he says, I will give him the morning star and it stops you know what this church was known for it's the tolerant church it tolerated this jezebel prophet tolerated the sin see it recognize it but i'm gonna turn and look the other way and we live in a world that's all sins all around us and you like, the people who preach tolerance are the most intolerant people because when you don't believe what they believe and you're a bigot and all these other names and you're canceled and you're so intolerant. I don't have to believe. I can still love you as a person. I can still go grab coffee, but I'm not going to accept what you're trying to tell me. So we live in a tolerant right age. And so we can't speak for the, everything around us, but let me go to Here's a question: What sin are you tolerating in your life? What sin are you turning the blind eye to? What sin like I just is what it is. This is what I do. It's just kind of hey, you know, I gave it a name. It's like a pet. It's always here. I, I realize I can't ever get rid of it, so I'm just gonna take it around with me. Kind of like your student loans. You know what I'm saying? Like it's always gonna be there, and you tolerate it. Even the author of Hebrews says. You didn't get rid of the sin. That, look at that definite article, the sin that trips you up all the time. Not a the one, the one. What is the sin that you keep tolerating in your life? What may that be? See, to tolerate something means to allow the existence, the presence, and the practice without any prohibition, without any hindrance, that you permit it. And what I've come to find out, even in my own life and just seeing it around, when you start to tolerate public sin as an acceptance, it's because you probably tolerated a private sin in your own life. And it don't ever start big, it starts small, very small. It's just that one drink. It's just that one click on a computer. It's that one extra video. It's that one extra flirt at work. That one walk-by, it's that one movie. It's, it's, that's just a movie, it's no big deal. Yeah, it's got nudity and profanity and all that stuff. I tell my boys all the time, says son, you I don't want you watching that stuff. Come on, Dad, I love, it's PG-13. I know, but I looked it up and it says the F word 50,000 times and all this stuff in it. Dad, why you gotta be like this, Dad? I hear it all the time at school, I hear it more at school. I said, I know. But you gotta go to school. You don't have to watch the movie. Choose wisely, son. Just, just one step. And when you give the enemy one little one little foothold, he will make it become a stronghold. And you begin to tolerate the sin in your life. And you'll begin to laugh at things that crucified your Savior because your heart gets hard and numb to the sin, your sin, but then the sin around you. And Jesus says, come on now. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to hold firm. I want you to be an overcomer and I want you to stay the course. That's what he says, right? Stay the course. Keep your head up. And you may be here today going, Pastor, I'm tolerating my sin. This is what's in my life or whatever it may be in my life and I've just kind of gotten numb to it. And it's like, I really don't know how to fix it or whatever There is there. What do I do? Listen to me. Here's what the first thing you do, you ready? First thing, repent. Right now, before you leave this place, repent. I'm not your priest, you have to come confess anything to me. You get before God right now and say, repent of your sin. Say, God, this is the sin of my life and I repent and I cannot get over this without you. You confess it right now. And if you watch this, this is so fascinating. If you hold firm, become an overcomer and you stay the course, guess what he says I will give you? Look what it says right there at the end of Revelation. I will give you the morning star. What in the world is the morning star? What's the morning star? Revelation twenty-two sixteen. he tells us, look what he says. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. Thank you, Jesus, for sending us the angel to testify because I am the root of the descendant of David and I am, what is the bright and morning star. Do you know what we get? Jesus said, I'll give you myself. You get all of me. Keep your head up. Stay the course. Hold firm. Life's tough. It's gonna be hard. The culture's gonna counsel you. You may lose your job. You may lose your life. You hold firm. You stay faithful. And when you do, you will be rewarded. I'm gonna ask people just to bow your heads just for a moment. I'm gonna trust the Lord to speak and spoke into your life this morning. And if there's any sin that you're tolerating in your life, like the Church of Thyatira was tolerating this Jezebel spirit, this prophetess who's listened to her. I'm gonna ask you to do exactly what Jesus said to do, repent. And if you're here and you've never given your life to Jesus, listen to me, I beg you, please give your life to Jesus before it's eternally too late. He's coming. Here's another thought real quick. If Jesus would pin you a letter to you in your life, what would his letter say to you? I know this about you. He would give you praise, but then where would he point out the flaws? Let's work on those. He loves you. He said, I gave her time to repent. He is gracious or you wouldn't even be here. That's how much he loves you. Father, thank you so much for your love and your grace and your mercy this morning. Thank you for how relevant your word is. Even 2,000 years later, it still speaks to our heart. We hope and pray, God, that you would move in our midst. Draw us to yourself. Please don't let the enemy come and snatch the seed that's been planted in our hearts this morning. And may we always give you who hold the seven stars in your hand, who's the first and the last, the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end, the double-edged swords, Lord, the one who speaks truth, who is the Son of God, we ask this in your name, amen.